Hi everyone, welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always cutting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rohrkraut. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And today we'll be talking all about the 74th Cannes Film Festival, and we'll be going into the two unanimous Palme d'Or winners that ended up going on to also win Best Picture at the Oscars. So that includes Marty from 1955 and Parasite from 2019 two very different films to win the Palme d'Or and Best Picture. I can't wait to get into my experience at the Cannes Film Festival, what it was like to be a part of that and to travel to France and answer some questions that listeners had about that, as well as discuss some Oscar potential possibly coming out of the festival. I can't wait to hear all about it. I'm so, so jealous I think connecting these two movies is going to be super interesting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if there are parallels, but... The only parallel is that they won. (laughs) (laughs) I will start there. And so just a caveat, The Lost Weekend, so this movie from 1945, it won the Grand Prix, which is the top prize at the festival, but... This award Mm -hmm. wasn't actually called the Palme d'Or until 1955 when Marty won. It also was one of 11 winners, including Brief Encounter and Rome Open City. So we won't be talking about that one today, maybe on a future Oscar Rewind or something like that. So the Cannes Film Festival, then known as the International Film Festival, was founded in 1946. Back in the late 30s, the French wanted to compete with the Venice Film Festival since that was the largest at the time. And the Americans and Brits were also on board to join them. And this partnership was solidified in 1937 and 38 at Venice because Mussolini and Hitler, they ended up changing the jury's decisions, even ones that went against the rules. So the French, American, and British jury members all withdrew. In 1939, that following year, they founded their own festival. The opening night gala took place on August 31st with the screening of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and then the next day, Germany invaded Poland. And then days later, France and the UK declared war on Germany. So this festival wasn't happening. They delayed it until 1946, and that's when we had the first Cannes International Film Festival. This is so fascinating to me. Mussolini and Hitler getting involved with the Venice jury. That is so Mm -hmm. crazy. So what is the Palme d'Or exactly? It translates to the Golden Palm, and this is the highest award that you can get at the Cannes Film Festival. It was introduced in 55, so Marty was the earliest winner. Prior to that, the highest award was called the Grand Prix, and now they still award the Grand Prix, but it's the runner-up. So if you ever see a film that has the Grand Prix award, that's why. So obviously, it's a huge deal to win the Palme d'Or. We will talk about the winners of the festival this year, all of those awards. But I think it's pretty fascinating to think about how Best Picture and the Palme d'Or pretty much never overlap. This is not something Mm -hmm. to look at as an indicator of what will go on to even be nominated for Best Picture, let alone win. This is really a standalone award of the festival and a high honor, but not a precursor by any means. They also give out honorary Palm Doors. So like this year at the festival, Jodie Foster received an honorary Palm Door. I know the actresses from Blue is the Warmest Color, like those are the only actresses to win the Palm Door as opposed to directors. So sometimes they will do things like that. And sometimes they choose chaos. It really just depends on the jury president and who is on board on the jury. There are quite a few international films here. So I can see why many of these don't translate to the Oscars. The few that have, for example, like Barton Fink or Pulp Fiction... The Pianist, Fahrenheit 9-11, The Tree of Life. I think there are definitely some outstanding filmmakers and acclaimed films among these winners. But I kind of like that they rarely overlap. It gives us a different mix of films, maybe even a different caliber of film to watch throughout the year and to get us ready for award season. So why don't you take over, tell us all about (laughs) your experience and how it went the movies you saw, the movies you liked, things that shocked you, 
how easy it was uh-huh. to get around and to see films, like what the venues were like, what it was like being surrounded by a group <laughs> of international fans and moviegoers. Going to Cannes was definitely in, I would say, like top five life experiences for me. Mm. It was oh so, <laughs> so beautiful and just surreal. Every, I mean, it's the most glamorous film festival in the world and you feel that when you're there. I'm trying to think of just where to start because there's just so much like going through my mind. So I'm going to go through some questions. I think that's probably the easiest way to do this. And these are from like listeners on Twitter, Instagram. I just listed them all here. How does can work? So this is very general, but there are some screenings that you can go to that are for films that are in competition. So these films are all the ones that are competing for the Palme d'Or. And then there are other sections of the festival, like Uncertain Regard, which are usually films by up-and-coming filmmakers. These are really interesting because it's a huge international slate, and this is where I saw films like After Yang by Koganada, for instance. Um, This wasn't a film that was in competition, but one that I was able to see because it was in this part of the festival. There are also things like Director's Fortnight, Critics Week, there's so many different types of screenings and programming that can take place, which is really cool. As far as the way that ticketing works, so in previous years, you would basically just get your badge, it has your picture on it, and it tells you like what type of accreditation you have. There are lots of different accreditations you can get that pretty much permit you to get anywhere in the festival. The only screenings I didn't go to as part of the three days in Cannes Pass were press screenings, but premieres I had access to, virtually every screening I could go to. So in the past, you would have to line up like hours before in a line based on your badge, and then they could let you in to potentially get a seat. But this year they changed it because of COVID to be an online ticketing system, which was a real pain at first. It was kind of, it was a nightmare because it seemed like you weren't going to get any tickets. It was really scary. I was like, am I going to get all the way to France and not be able to see any movies? That was a fear at one point, but it ended up really working out because I didn't have to wait at all. Like I got all the tickets that I wanted and could just have 10 minutes in between screenings and go back to back and not have to wait in line, which was, I think, a huge perk. Sounds so much nicer. Yeah, and I talked to... This one like old man who I sat next to at the worst person in the world, he was like, this is my 15th year going to Cannes. So we were talking oh about gosh. that. It was so cool. And he was telling me how much better the system felt this year because he said he gets so sick of waiting in line. He had abandoned so many movie lines before because he was just tired of waiting wow. and wanted to go to something else. So mm-hmm. um, this system seemed to, I think, cause a lot of fear at first due to technical glitches, but ultimately ended up working really well. It was really fun looking at the schedule and figuring out like what all I could see in a day. A lot of people have asked, like, how many movies did you see? How many per day? The most I ever saw in a day was five movies which was, I mean, that was like a marathon day where I didn't really eat. I just Mm -hmm. went from screening to screening to screening. So in the three days, I saw 14 movies and went to two talks, one with Jodie Foster and one with Matt Damon. Ooh, very cool. Other questions, physical tickets are all digital. All of my tickets were digital, but you can, if you go to things called gala screenings, you can go to a ticket office and request a physical ticket, which sounds really silly, but I did that because I wanted them as souvenirs. And you asked me about the venues. So all of the venues are pretty close together. All of the premieres will be in the, it's called the Grand Theater Lumiere. And then there are a bunch of smaller theaters, but there's still like a decent size surrounding it. And then there's this place called the translation is like the palace of the festivals and it kind of looks like a big fancy conference center (laughs) and that's where you can go and they have like free coffee for you their lounges with wi-fi and that's where i went to the talks and there are also theaters in there so it's pretty much all in one place the only time i had to travel anywhere really was for the director's fortnight when i went to see the souvenir part two that was just an additional like 10 minute walk away I know some people went to the new IMAX in Cannes, but you had to take a bus, and I was just like, I don't need to do this. I can just stay in this general area. 
and catch everything that I want to, but that was also an option. So there were lots of theaters that were really easily accessible and screenings you can go to and from really easily. And I also stayed in Cannes, which was nice. I looked into staying in places like Nice or Antibes, but I knew I would want to go to late screenings and wouldn't want to have to figure out mm-hmm. like taking the train home at 1 a.m. So I'm really glad that I decided to stay really close to the venues. So we got a question to like, what was the demographic of the attendees? Like that was really cool because it was just a very international group. I will say that typically Cannes is during May and this time it was in July. So we were in peak French Riviera tourist season. So it was a little bit more crowded in that way. Probably one of my bigger worries is Uh looking underdressed. Like, do you wear a tux all the time? Like really nice dresses or suits? Mm Yeah, so the attire is kind of funny. Like during the day, anything goes for the most part. Like you'll see people in track suits. You'll see people dressed up. You will really see anything. I wore, I would say like Madewell, Zara during the daytime. And then you have to wear black tie if you go to any of the premieres. So those always take place at night. They're called gala screenings. And when you get your ticket, there will be like a little bow tie next to it. So you know that you have to wear a formal oh, dress. Cute. Yeah. Okay. Like women have to wear heels, which is a little antiquated. Men have to wear tuxes. Most women were wearing like floor length dresses. Very fancy, which was so fun. Going from watching a movie with my large Diet Coke in my athleisure to... <laughs> <laughs> Going to Cannes and watching it in black tie was so cool. And a huge part of that, too, is because it's a world premiere. You walk on the red carpet to get into the theater, which wow. I also didn't expect. I thought they would have, like, a sad, sorry entrance for the regular people, and then the celebrities mm-hmm. would do the red carpet and the main entrance. But no, everyone does the main entrance and the red carpet. So there was a moment where I looked behind me, and Spike Lee was... I would say about a hundred feet away on the same red carpet. It was so scary. I was like, what, what is happening to me? This is so, I mean, wildest dreams, crazy. Were there photographers taking pictures of like everybody or it was like, Oh, I spot Spike Lee. Let me stop and take a photo. Probably. I mean, I'm sure there are some somewhere that some photographer has just because they, the photographers line up on the red carpet and will take, pictures of everyone walking through but as far as just like normal people go on the red carpet i'm sure there are photos somewhere but i didn't like stop and pose for them okay so another thing about like just the schedule in general that i thought was really fun as a morning person was that they have screenings starting as early as 8 a.m i was ready to go very early and you can really pack your day in and that'll give you an opportunity to take breaks and to like go to the beach if you want to like you walk out of the theater and it's right there did you do any beach screenings i did so i did they have this thing called cinema de la plage so they do beach mm-hmm. screenings and i did in the mood for love the first night that oh. i was there oh wow mm-hmm. the big one this year was f9 they did <laughs> they had that on the beach that was like the oh my god it was a thing i thought it yeah. was a joke wow i did too i was hoping it would be something else like Top Gun Maverick or something like that. I just did In the Mood for Love. And that was the same night as the Annette premiere. It was just later. I didn't go to that. I went to the screening the next morning. So most of the screenings, they offer them multiple times. So if you don't go to the premiere premiere, like for me, I just watched the red carpet because I wanted to see Adam and Marion, of course. They'll have multiple screenings the next couple of days, usually. They'll play a film for two or three days, and then they have a day of like reruns at the end. We'll talk about Annette when we get there. <laughs> <laughs> so someone asked, is the cast always at the screenings? Usually not. That is a perk of going earlier in the festival when there are more premieres. If you go at the end, the celebrities a lot of times are gone because the films have already premiered. Usually they will just be at the premiere screening. So that's where like Timothy Chalamet would go, but he wouldn't see the rest of the French Dispatch. And that was what I liked about going to the Uncertain Regard series was that all of those were premieres that were really easy to get into. And 
chances are the director and a couple of the cast members would be there. So it was always cool to do that. And then what I really loved that I, I guess I just didn't think about or know how it worked was the standing ovation process. So mm-hmm. people make fun of this on Twitter because every every movie it can gets a standing ovation. I'm not kidding. It doesn't matter how good it is or anything like that. It just happens. When a movie starts, so the lights go down and they play this little musical intro. It'd be like if you were at an AMC and they do the whole thing with like mm-hmm. the popcorn and the pop and they're like, it's your movie's about to start or whatever. They do that, but it's this like beautiful set of stairs. Then it says Cannes Film Festival on it and everyone starts cheering. People start clapping and cheering, <laughs> which is really cute. And then it ends and it's just like, it's still pitch black through the credits. So you sit and watch all the credits like every time. The lights come on once the credits are over and then you do the standing ovation. They can last for a while. It's fun because in at least in the big theater, they will show on the screen the video of like Paul Verhoeven, for instance, like watching uh-huh. everyone cheer for him, um, which is kind of awkward, but also endearing because a lot of times they're really moved. Like Stillwater, Matt Damon was crying at the standing ovation, Aww. which was really wow. cute. I mean, they're there sometimes in pretty much every case, besides the case of Adam Driver, they stay and watch the movie with you. Benedetto, which I've mentioned, like I watched that movie with the cast, which is really weird to think about because especially the way that that movie plays out. I mean, it's it's absolutely <laughs> insane. But yeah, so that's how standing ovations work. It doesn't matter how good your movie is, how bad it is you will get one and it's really fun to participate in them. If the cast is there, do they usually do Q and A's or is it just like a hi, thank you. We're appreciative kind of thing. So they don't really speak. Usually it depends on what the screening is, but at the big ones, none of the big premieres I went to had Q and A's or had them like speaking or saying anything. It's usually the president that will say something at the beginning and they just kind of stand there and smile. But the films that were in certain regard and the films that were directors fortnight, they either do Q and A's or they speak before their film. So before after Yang, Koganata spoke about the film, like briefly, just how excited he was to be at Cannes. And then mm-hmm. they'll usually turn it over to like one or two actors who will say something about the movie or how it feels to be there. And then for director's fortnight, so for the souvenir part two, that had a Q&A. So that was with Joanna Hogg and Tilda Swinton and mm-hmm. Honor Swinton-Byrne. They were all there. So some of them do, but usually it's on like a one-off basis or dependent on what the type of screening is, especially because most of the big screenings have press conferences like the next day that you can also go to if you want to. The only press screening I went to was the one for Annette, which okay. I can't wait to fill you in on that after you see the movie. Oh, geez. <laughs> so what celebrities did you see? Did you end up introducing yourself to any? Did you talk to any? I did speak to Tilda Swinton, which is like crazy to think about. <laughs> I so strange thinking about it. She is so cool and actually really, really nice. So all the celebrities that I saw, I think the biggest ones were definitely Jodie Foster, Matt Damon, Adam Driver, Bong Joon-ho, Spike Lee, Maggie Gyllenhaal, who I have a hilarious picture of that I sent you. (laughs) (laughs) It's fun, though, because they will just be, like, walking by you. It's not this big eventized Mm -hmm. thing in most cases. Like, some people saw Spike Lee in the gift shop buying a tote bag. (laughs) Like, they really are just walking around or... In some cases, going to the McDonald's, which is right by Cannes. Oh, wow. I love that. Yeah. My very first night there, though, I saw Timothy Chalamet right away. That was fun. I immediately, of course, texted you and my sister. I was like, I saw Timmy. (laughs) And at first, I didn't think so because there were multiple lookalikes that I saw. So overall, going to Cannes was an incredible experience. I've been to film festivals before or, you know, taken part in online screenings through film festivals, gone to New York Film Festival, Middleburg Film Festival in Virginia, like small ones, bigger ones. But this was just on another level. And I think that's Mm -hmm. one, because 
it's the biggest one in the world, but also having it be after 2020, it felt even more surreal, I think. And it definitely, it was going through my head before I went, I thought, okay, this is a once in a lifetime experience. Who knows if I'll ever get to go back to Cannes. And now I'm like, I have to go back. I need, need, need to go back again. (laughs) And I highly encourage anyone to apply for an accreditation like Three Days in Can or a Cinephile accreditation. There are lots of different ways that you can find your mm-hmm. way there. And definitely reach out on Twitter, email, Instagram, wherever, if you have any questions about going to Can or um, other questions about my experience. I will gladly talk about this forever. <laughs> I always thought it was impossible to go or you only could go with an invitation. Like it was a very private thing, but that's Mm -hmm. such a small part of it too. Like I looked up the cinephile accreditation is if you're a member at any film organization, you can apply for this pass. Yeah. So I definitely need to do this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes, you do. I'm so excited. It's definitely less intimidating now having heard all of this mm-hmm. i know it's going to be a rush when i do go so i'm very very excited for all of this mm-hmm. oh my god i can't wait for you to go and honestly i'll probably go again so <laughs> we can be there at the same time we'll have a ton of oscar wilde merch by that point oh my and god <laughs> we'll leave it everywhere <laughs> so this was the 74th Cannes film festival and you mentioned earlier like in certain regard, the main competition for the Palm Door, there's a camera door, the queer palm, there are all these different categories of films, and each one of those has a different jury. So for the main competition, we had Spike Lee as the jury president. Some other members were Maggie Gyllenhaal, Melanie Laurent, Tahar Rahim, and Song Kang Ho, who we will talk about later on mm-hmm. with Parasite. Andrea Arnold was the jury president of Uncertain Regard. And then many of the others within the categories are French, either actors or directors. And then some of the films from this year's slate, some of those that were in competition were Annette, Benedetta, The French Dispatch, A Hero, Memoria, Red Rocket, Titan, and The Worst Person in the World. In certain regard, you mentioned after Yang, there's Blue Bayou, which we had mentioned on our 2021 predictions Mm -hmm. podcast. And then out of competition was Stillwater, The Velvet Underground, Where is Anne Frank? In the Cannes premiere section, there was Cow by Andrea Arnold, Mothering Sunday, Vortex. Another thing that I don't know why I didn't think about or realize before Cannes was that these juries watch all of these films at these big screenings. It's not like they watch them ahead of time. Like in the case of the competition jury, they're at the world premiere. In the case of the jury for Uncertain Regard, all of those movies that I went to, Andrea Arnold was there watching them, making her wow. decision. So the Palm d'Or winner this year was Titan, which was by Julia de Cornell. She is the only woman to win the Palm d'Or on her own. So yes, Jane Campion won for the piano, but that was a year where there was a tie. We had two winners for the Palm d'Or. So she becomes the second woman to win the Palm d'Or and the first woman to win it on her own, which is really neat. And I cannot wait for you to see this. It's like David Cronenberg, body horror, shock and awe. And then for our Grand Prix, so this was our runner-up, we had a tie between A Hero, which we also talked about in our early Oscar predictions episode, and Compartment Number 6. And then for Best Director, Leos Carax won for Annette. This made me really happy. I didn't look too much into reviews. They seem to be kind of mixed positive, Mm -hmm. but him winning for Director is kind of all I needed because that's... Mm -hmm. What I felt about Holy Motors is that it was so well, yet oddly directed, that mm-hmm. that's why it was so fascinating. Yeah. So I'm, I'm still all in on Annette. I can't wait to see it again. It's an experience. I will say there's part of me that wonders if the jury was trying to make up for not giving him the palm door for Holy Motors or more awards mm-hmm. for that movie. I still like Holy Motors more, not to like step on mm-hmm. how I feel about Annette, but 
Try to stay away from reviews. Try to stay away from that rumor that is true that's going around um, from the press oh notes about Adam and Marion and one of their scenes. You don't know this? No. Oh my god! Okay, <laughs> don't. don't. Tell me. I was I was so shook. Me and this French girl next to me were like almost in tears. It was so overwhelming. It was it was really a lot. Adam Driver fans out there, just get ready. I can't, so you don't know about like. Annette, like the, the baby. No, yet? no, no. Okay, no. all right. Okay, I won't. I won't spoil anything. I'm gonna keep it. We're gonna talk more about Annette when it comes out, of course. But yes, um, I'm really excited for you to to witness it all. <laughs> and then best screenplay went to Drive My Car. The jury prize went to Memoria by Apichapong Wirasetika, and Ahed's Knee, directed by Nadav Lapid. Best Actress went to Renata Rainsva for The Worst Person in the World. And Best Actor went to Caleb Landry-Jones in Nitram. I'm really excited about the Palm d'Or winner. I think it's a, it's a bold, exciting move from Spike Lee and his jury to give Julia the Palm d'Or. Um, it was picked up by Neon, which is thrilling honestly because i'm happy that they'll know what to do with it i think and can get it out and Mm -hmm. can get people to watch it hopefully france will select it as their movie for the oscars it will be very polarizing so i I can see france going with something else in the way that they did the year of portrait of a lady on fire and her previous film raw was what sounds like just as polarizing i think that was the screening and can where people were throwing up and leaving so i can only imagine yeah thankfully this one isn't really about cannibalism so that's good um (laughs) maybe a little easier i'm really excited about a lot of these actually best actress i am so excited for her i really loved this movie it was such a nice surprise it reminded me of like early woody allen movies and i think it can be a real crowd pleaser if it's the Danish Oscar selection. And with these winners in this list of films, do you think there's some Oscar potential? No, not really. I think that Oscar Farhadi, possibly for a director, I think that that's very much still a possibility. I think that a good amount of these, where they can contend is in the best international feature category, which we've talked a lot about how that is often a place for very inventive, exciting films. So I can see quite a few of these getting in there. Compartment number six, I can definitely see a big push happening for that one. Ahed's Knee would be great if that happened. I don't know. It's a little autobiographical for Lapid. I don't know if its filmmaking style will work for the Academy. I'm really hopeful for the worst person in the world, though. Even if it doesn't get nominated, I really want people to watch this because I do think that people will like it and hopefully it can open people's eyes to international films and subtitles because it is very accessible. It's just like a delightful story. It's very like Frances Ha meets Hannah and her sisters. Ooh, okay. I liked it a lot. And then outside of the competition films or the award winners, I think where we can see Oscars happening or at least nominations the french dispatch i'm not sure if this will be above the line or just below the line but based on reviews coming out of Cannes, i think that it will definitely pick up some below the line nominations at least this might sound crazy but i think it really depends what happens with stillwater but matt damon gives a really good performance in that and i can see audiences like your average moviegoer really liking that it's about five movies rolled into one it's a little much (laughs) to be honest (laughs) but it does come out july 30th so everyone will get to see it very soon and matt damon is really good in it tom mccarthy fans though it is not spotlight i would not consider the writing in it to be as good as spotlight Otherwise, I heard a lot of positive buzz about Blue Bayou. People are either saying they were really moved by it and wept at the end, or that it's like Crash, like the Crash that beat Brokeback Mountain. So I think it's going to be one of those emotional, Mm -hmm. potentially a little too melodramatic movies that can work on Oscar voters. We'll see what happens when more people see it. But at this point in time, I would say... Those are the big ones. I mean, in a dream world, obviously, Adam Driver for Annette. He is on the exact same wavelength as Leos Carax in that movie, which is amazing to see. But 
I can't see Academy members going for that movie at all. (laughs) How about Mothering Sunday? Did you end up seeing that? So I didn't see it because I had to choose between that and Benedetta, which let me tell you, I want everyone to see Benedetta. It was a a romp (laughs) at the movies, but it will not get any Oscar nominations. Mothering Sunday, though, could. It does seem like a movie that's very up my alley. So I was torn for a second, but ended up going with the nuns ultimately. So I think we'll see what happens like once more people see it, but it got pretty positive reviews. I would say mixed positive. I didn't mm-hmm. hear much about Olivia Coleman, which is what I was thinking would happen mm-hmm. just because of, you know, it's Olivia Coleman. We'll see. It really depends on the rollout for that one. And I heard some buzz for Where is Anne Frank for animated film. Yeah. So I saw Where is Anne Frank. And I think that that actually does have a chance of getting into animated feature. It feels like something that could be like one of those Netflix international animated feature films that gets in. Mm -hmm. I also heard, and I didn't see this positive buzz for Bell, which is another animated film that premiered at Cannes. So I think our animated field could look pretty good this year. And with a field of 10, maybe one gets into best picture. I'm not really sure what that one is yet another one i didn't see that i'm very excited to see though is red rocket the new sean baker Mm -hmm. movie that got very positive reviews as well overall this festival was very successful i would say that in general the movies were very strong most got very positive reviews and people seem to be generally happy with what they were seeing i think my favorite movie of the festival if i had to pick would be a tie between After Yang and The Souvenir Part 2. The Souvenir Part 2 is just, it's perfect for people who love the first one, and I think it will connect with people who didn't like the first one, too. It has humor in it. It has very different tone, but has the same precision from Joanna Hogg and the same like emotional connection to Julie, the main character. And After Yang is just spectacular. I loved it so much. It's the perfect follow-up to Columbus for Koganata. But I think what I'm most excited for people to see is definitely Benedetta. I cannot wait to hear the reactions because it's, again, just a wild, wild time at the movies. And then we had one more question. Are any of the Palme d'Or winners your favorite film of the year it was awarded? I have quite a few, actually. Okay, I'll list off mine. Brief Encounter from 1946, The Third Man from 1949, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg from 1964, MASH from 1970, All That Jazz from 1980, and Pulp Fiction from 1994. And for mine, I'll say Pulp Fiction for 94, The Tree of Life definitely for 2011, and then Parasite for 2019. Okay, so let's get into Marty, Best Picture winner from 1955 and Palme d'Or winner. IMDb description here, a middle-aged butcher and a school teacher who have given up on the idea of love, meet at a dance, and fall for each other. It was directed by Delbert Mann, adapted from Patty Chayefsky's one-shot teleplay. You might recognize Patty Chayefsky from Network, which we've talked about before. It stars Ernest Borgnine, Betsy Blair, Esther Minciotti, and Joe Mantel. It won four Oscars, picture, director, actor for Borgnine, and screenplay for Patty Chayefsky. It was nominated for four other Oscars, supporting actor for Joe Mantel, supporting actress for Betsy Blair, cinematography black and white, and art direction, set decoration black and white. Had you seen this movie before, and what did you think of it on this watch? I had seen it before. I found it pretty easy to watch, but I think part of that is because it was 90 minutes. A lot of the technical work... I really liked, but I felt that the ending was super rushed. Mm -hmm. What did you think of this? So this was my first time seeing Marty. The only thing that I really knew about it was from Quiz Show, the Robert Redford movie, Mm -hmm. where it's the answer to that trivia question of what was the best (laughs) picture winner of that year. So that was all I really knew about it. Fun connection there really quickly. Delbert Mann was the first winner of Best Director to win on his first feature, And that was only accomplished later by Robert Redford for Ordinary People. So a little connection again between Marty and Quiz Show. Anyway, I digress back to how I felt about this. I agree with you, especially on the ending. I thought it was really rushed. And if your movie's only 90 minutes anyway, 
you have time to play with. You don't need to really Mm -hmm. rush the ending. And I think this movie falls into a trap that a lot of Oscar winners fall into for viewers kind of revisiting them later, which is I think if this movie didn't win Best Picture or didn't win the Palme d'Or, I would have enjoyed it a lot more. But I think because it won those awards, I was expecting more. Mm -hmm. I was like expecting something like really groundbreaking or really moving. And it just wasn't that for me. I was left confused as to how it ended up winning these awards. But I Mm -hmm. will say I did love the Ernest Borgnine performance. I thought that that was the strongest component of the movie. And definitely I think what kept me interested and what I think turned it into a more emotional story. But again, I was kind of left confused as to how it won these awards. And apart from those, you mentioned that it was the first feature film directorial debut to win. Being 90 Minutes, it's the shortest Best Picture winner of all time. It's also the only film based on a television production to win Best Picture. And then it's also the only time in film history that the producers spent more on their award campaign than they did making the actual movie. It had a budget of $343,000, but they ended up spending four hundred k on marketing, which it worked. Yeah. It was worth it. But I definitely agree. And just the premise of the story, I had a lot of trouble with. Mm-hmm. Everybody's upset that he's a single guy at 34, doesn't <laughs> want to get married. And then the one girl he brings home, everyone calls ugly and looks like she's 50 years old. And she's 29. So I was kind of surprised, actually, that this ended up winning Best Picture. I read that, you know, this was one of the films that showed studio executives that low-budget independent films could do well in the U.S. So I'm obviously grateful to it for that. You know, they had known before that these films were successful in Europe, but not necessarily in the U.S. And Marty was kind of the movie that convinced them that this was viable and also... It solidified United Artists or UA as a brand. So I think that that's interesting stuff. And same with, you know, the facts about the marketing campaign. But as far as like the actual movie goes, I don't get it. So there was an article in the LA Times where Borgnine had said Hecht Lancaster wanted to lose money because they were making so much money from their other pictures. They wanted to shoot half of it and then put it on the shelf and take a tax loss. But their tax man said, you can't do that. You have to finish it and show it one time and then take your tax loss. And then once it was released in New York City, it got rave reviews. So I guess everybody was shocked that it was a big contender for the Oscars. I will say this isn't a very strong year at the Oscars, but I'll also say the 50s as a decade might be my blind spot. But there isn't another contender that jumps out as being like a clear winner in this somehow kind of got in the way. The other big movie that I think of from this year is East of Eden, and that wasn't nominated for Best Picture. I think I think of East of Eden and Rebel Without a Cause, which were both this year because of James Dean and because he had just died. Okay. At Cannes this year, there were 33 films in competition, which is a lot. It's a lot of films to be competing for the Palme d'Or, and I think that's just because of how the festival you know, has changed over the years. And now they have these different segments of the festival where films can premiere and compete or not compete. Until the 1954 festival, the way that prizes were being awarded led to a lot of criticism. So then from 55 and on, that's when they created the jury, which is kind of similar to how we know it now. And I think it kind of makes sense if you think about it, like if they're responding to the Palme d'Or or the Grand Prix back then being handed out willy-nilly, not really having a clear way of doing things. It kind of makes sense Mm -hmm. to give it to just a crowd-pleasing film like Marty, as opposed to what we think of now, I think, with Palme d'Or winners like Titan, which are these kind of grittier auteur films instead Mm -hmm. of something like Marty. Which I think is why people are confused. You know, we got questions about how Marty ended up winning the Palme d'Or because it doesn't feel like a can movie. I agree. And we had a Jules Dassin film. We had an Otto Preminger film. De Sica, Kazan. There are other films they definitely could have given the Palme d'Or to, but this feels really safe. So that's probably why they did it. So then a little bit more about Marty. Apart from the story, I think... 
all of its components were done well. Like the acting was there. The cinematography really for me was the high point. There were a lot of long takes, which I really liked because it shows that the actors know what they're doing. They're in control and they can navigate these scenes really well. I agree. I think that the camera work is really strong there and I felt for him, but I also was just kind of thinking like he wasn't compelling enough as a character for me to really care about this story. But I also think like Borgnine does such a good job in the part that I did feel for him and it did kind of connect me and draw me back in. And I think the screenplay does that too, but I think maybe it's hard for us because you're married by 30, you're starting a family, you have a house, you don't live with your mother. Mm -hmm. And the way that men and women are treated in this movie, too, I think it is an interesting way to look at masculinity and how Marty differs from all of his friends and the, the men we meet like at the dance club who is trying to hook up with this other girl that he knew previously and ditch Clara, who Marty ends up befriending. So Marty is this really sensitive guy. But then I think in the end where in the final couple minutes, Marty decides now that he's going to call her back and that he needs this love and partnership in his life to be happy. I think that kind of turned the message on my head and confused me a bit. So I think what it was trying to do, like I see it, but it was a little disjointed. I do think what's interesting is that talking about like how this kind of surprisingly paved the way for American indie films. I think that's a Mm -hmm. unique way to look at it. And I do think that a lot of films that we do end up getting later on have similar themes to them. Like they'll be about these like bachelor men, you know, trying to find a woman or forcing the audience to think about masculinity in a different way. So It's kind of like a talkie film, too, like a Linklater type of film. Just I think I just like the versions of it that come later better. But when you mentioned Clara, I realized that I had been holding out a fact on you. Do you know who was initially supposed to play Clara instead of Betsy Blair? No. Nancy Marchand, a.k.a. Livia Soprano. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Which I think could have been perfect, honestly. Yeah. Because the whole thing about, too, like, Betsy Blair was blacklisted, and she got the job in part due to Gene Kelly, who was her husband at the time, lobbying for Mm -hmm. her. But she's remained on the blacklist even after getting an Oscar nomination and being in a successful film. So do you think anything was snubbed? I don't think so. I think eight nominations and four wins, that's a a pretty big deal. Mm -hmm. I don't think I would have included anything else. What about you? Yeah, I like all of these nominations. And how do you think today's Academy would receive this movie? I think it might have gotten like four nominations and one win. Definitely not as good as it did. I agree. I think we would see indie spirit, maybe. We would see actor in screenplay. I think that's pretty much the extent. So if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would you give it? I would give... Ernest Borgnine, Best Actor. I think this is a good Best Actor win. I think he carries the movie. And even looking at the field from that year, I think I still would have given him the Oscar with James Dean close behind. What about you? Yeah, I would do the same thing, Ernest Borgnine. All right, time for Parasite. Yes, finally. (laughs) We should say before we start, we're not going to do like a deep, deep dive into Parasite. We will do that eventually. We just need... A lot of time and to dedicate I would say a full episode to Parasite so we'll just be scratching the surface today talking about it relating it to Cannes but we will have an episode at some point that dives into all of the themes and the symbolism and all of that good stuff. So IMD description, greed and class discrimination threatened the newly formed symbiotic relationship between the wealthy Park family and the destitute Kim clan. It's directed by Bong Joon-ho, it stars Song Kang-ho, Lee Sun Kyun, Park Sodam, Cho Yo Jung, and Lee Jung Yun. It won four Oscars for Picture, Director, Original Screenplay, and International Feature, and it was nominated for two more for Production Design and Film Editing. We love this movie, but what in particular do you like about Parasite? I've always, I think, 
When I was in college, I started watching South Korean thrillers and kind of found that to be a specific type of international film that I really loved. And I had watched other Bong Joon-ho films before, like The Host, Mother. But when I saw Parasite, it almost felt odd to me in the moment that it felt like an event because I went to go see it like the day it came out in a theater and the screening was sold out. And I just thought to myself, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Like just a Thursday night screening sold mm-hmm. out. Everyone wants to see this movie. And that doesn't happen for every Palm Door winner. That doesn't happen for Korean movies in the US. Like it just, it doesn't happen. So even before the movie started, I kind of thought to myself, okay, either this is going to be like one of the best film going experiences of my life, or this is completely hyped up and it's going to be fine, but I'm not going to get the hype. And, oh, I have goosebumps thinking about it. With like every twist and turn that this movie takes, I was actually genuinely shocked. I had no idea what was coming. You know, I read a lot of thrillers. I watch a lot of them. I read detective novels where I'm just like, okay, I can see this coming from a mile away. And this was one of the signature, I would say, movie-going experiences of my lifetime where everything that happened, I just, I'm watching a master at work. And that sounds so hyperbolic, Mm -hmm. but I just hadn't, I don't think, in a long time seen a movie that felt so controlled but also so unhinged at the same time where I was like I'm on the ride I don't want to get off and I never thought that it would turn into what it became but after I saw it and you know told everyone like you have to see Parasite everyone see Parasite I started noticing something really cool which was that friends of mine or you know people I went to high school with who I would have never thought would end up watching a Korean film were raving about Parasite. Like people who don't watch movies watched this movie and liked it. It really somehow became a movie that everybody loved and it was so special. And obviously I'm so glad it won Best Picture and was such like a groundbreaking accomplishment for Bong Joon-ho. And I'm so glad that we have the movie. That was a lot. (laughs) What about you? This film had so much buzz coming out of Cannes, and Mm -hmm. my friend and I were so stoked about it. We saw it as soon as we could, and this was just one of the most thrilling film-going experiences I think I've ever had. When the movie transitions into what you really don't expect, it's just from there on out like a crazy ride and I could tell that there was such perfect execution behind what Bong Joon-ho was trying to say and how he was saying those things with the camera with the locations the movements every little detail and once the movie ended it came full circle and I just felt so satisfied by everything Mm -hmm. that had happened I still had questions I was trying to figure out the logistics of what had happened and I was like when can I see this again I think I saw it in theaters four times, and I did also see it in black and white. We're not going to go through a bunch of scenes, but I think starting out with the shot of the socks and looking out through the basement window of the Kim's apartment and the way the camera pans down and having that shot at the very end of the film too, one is just really telling of their social status as a family living in a basement underground comparing that to the basement of the Parks house, and then also as a mirror of how all of this has happened, but their lives haven't changed. I feel like we need to just put it on the calendar now to do a supplemental Parasite episode, like an addendum, because the films that I like the best, I view very similarly to like great works of literature or art where there are so many like symbols or themes that you can pull apart and that adds so much to the story and this was one where certain things would happen and it felt like fireworks in my brain where I was just Mm -hmm. like I need to write all of this down I have to see this again and I do remember too like after seeing this texting you like big long long paragraphs like when he's walking down the stairs, this is what I was thinking. Like when the water was rushing this way, this is what I was thinking. Uh, when it's going past the rock, all of it. Yeah. 
And the ending is so perfect. What was also fun for me, and I really recommend everybody out there go listen to this. I think it's actually on YouTube, but it's the director's commentary from the Criterion Blu-ray that was released. And it's just Bong Joon-ho talking the whole two plus hours. And he gives lots of little tidbits, like how he framed the Kim and Park family differently, and then explained more about using Native American culture and imagery in the movie and what that means specifically about the ending, he mentioned how Kiwu would have had to have worked for 547 years to afford that house. I love how Bong Joon-ho captures generational differences, in particular attitudes towards wealth and the attainment of wealth and the ability to become a part of a different socioeconomic class or not. The way he executes that not just through the script, but through these visual storytelling elements is what makes this, I think, a masterwork and not just like a movie that's trying to pack in all these big ideas. Like he has these big ideas and he executes them with such control and in a way that even if you don't get all of it on your first or second or even third viewing, it's still an enjoyable experience to watch this movie. Even if you don't find yourself watching a lot of Korean films, there's something in this movie for everyone. And I really hope that, you know, it winning Best Picture, I hope that that, like, makes it more accessible for people and that they're not intimidated or afraid to watch it. Do you have one favorite scene from the movie? I have a few. I really love the editing in the scene when the Kim family is at the Park family's home and they find out that the Parks are coming back from the camping trip because it's raining. I love Mm -hmm. the tension that's built in that scene. I love the editing as she's making the Ramdan with Sirloin. I love how they're all cleaning up and you really don't know what's going to happen in this family. You have no idea. And then I love the end where you get both stories from both the father and the son after what they've been through. And it just, I think it comes together so perfectly and is incredibly profound. So I would say those two, um, but obviously there are more. Like I I love the whole movie deeply. So what about you? There's a 60 shot sequence in the middle of the movie where the Kim family is trying to get the housekeeper fired. And this is where they make her sick with the peach fuzz there's this really soaring music happening behind everything. The mm-hmm. camera is moving every direction. It is so gorgeous. This movie just makes me so happy. <laughs> it's, I guess, in a really twisted way. I have a question for you. When you think of peaches, do you think of Call Me By Your Name or Parasite? <laughs> uh, I think I still think of Call Me By Your Name. Really? Me too. <laughs> it's unfortunate that like even a movie like Parasite couldn't erase that. <laughs> but I love the shot of her when she's holding up the peach from profile. Yes. That's so such a beautiful shot. I think part of that too is because the peach is really big and it's like a yellow bright orange color. Mm-hmm. And most peaches that I see at the supermarket are darker like a reddish orange like the call me by your name peach yeah exactly so i think it's more of that than how much the movie peach influenced me (laughs) and how i think about it (laughs) well as you know i love a poison plot so or any kind of thing (laughs) like that so this was great another one of my favorite scenes parasite of course why we're talking about it it won the palm door in 2019 That year, 21 films were in competition, including films like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, A Hidden Life, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Baccarat. With the win here, Bong Joon-ho became the first Korean director to win the Palme d'Or, and it was also a unanimous win. So sometimes these wins aren't unanimous. They'll just, you know, the jury will vote for different things, and that's normal. Mm -hmm. But here we had a jury that all unanimously decided that Parasite should win the Palme d'Or. And I think we're also thinking about a year that was very strong for film. I had a number of five-star films this year, as opposed to something like last year where I did not. And I think even like Cannes as an international festival, it still is a huge deal that a Korean film won 
this, like you said earlier, I think definitely not only kickstarted its Oscar campaign, but really started to get the word out and build hype around it. And I think without that, we wouldn't get the Oscar buzz and wins that ended up happening. And do you think that anything was snubbed here? Well, starting out with acting, I think Song Kang Ho should have been nominated. The cast is just so good. They did win Best Ensemble at SAG, which is where I first had hope that they could win at the Oscars. Mm -hmm. But that made me so happy because each person nails their character so well. Apart from that, I think the score is great. I don't know why that wasn't nominated. Cinematography. I'm surprised it didn't get a cinematography nomination. That was maybe the most disappointing to me. What did you think was snubbed? So in our outline, just for listeners, I wrote everything. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, we had opportunities for multiple categories. The Peach sequence could have been nominated for short film. Not really, but should have, probably. (laughs) Um, (laughs) In all seriousness, though, I think we should have had an acting nomination in nearly every category. I can make a case for like five or six actors from this movie and why they should have been nominated. In particular, I mean, Song Kang-ho, obviously, he's incredible in this movie. And he really, I think, makes you feel a lot of the pain that you feel from the Kim's experience. Mm -hmm. Like you experience that through him. I also think that Lee Jung-un, who plays Moon Gwang, the housekeeper, she's fabulous in this movie. Mm -hmm. I also love... Cho Ye-jung, who plays Mrs. Park. I think it's really hard to play dumb really well. (laughs) And she is so convincing in that part. I thought she was incredible, too. And Park So Damn, I want to make room for every person in this movie because I thought they were just fantastic. Otherwise, though, cinematography is a really big one. I also really love the score. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was obviously going to win production design, but I do want to call out the production design here because that house is pretty ingenious how it's set up Mm -hmm. and design is crucial to the rest of the story and the fact that all these spaces were built from scratch bong joon ho really liked having control over his spaces the basement in particular but then with the house only the first floor was constructed and then the second floor was green screened and then filmed on sound stages but i agree there i think those are not only beautiful, but they contrast really well. Apart mm-hmm. from what it didn't win, I think film editing also was mm-hmm. always going to go to Ford versus Ferrari. But yeah. like we've been saying, Parasite really, really deserved. Should have been nominated for costume design. Definitely cinematography. I also would have given it sound editing and sound mixing nominations. <laughs> <laughs> Like I said, everything. We're going down the line here. Glass of Soju for original song. Like we we had options. Because I think now looking back at it, six nominations, even though it won four, like doesn't seem like that many. It's not enough. No. (laughs) So if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would you give it? Are we allowed to do picture? Usually we don't, right? Usually we don't. This is like the one instance where I would. Okay. Yeah. So I will give Parasite. (laughs) best picture if we can't if we want to stick to our normal rules of like any oscar besides best picture i will say best director for bong joon ho i think that like either of those two um this could have been a good year for a split honestly we had such great films yeah usually i have trouble deciding which one i want to give it to but here it's like i want to give them all of the awards Mm -hmm. i would also do bong joon ho i've always loved his movies especially mother which is a dark watch, but I highly recommend. And I thought maybe a split was going to happen, but I am so happy that it didn't. Parasite and Bong Joon-ho deserve both of those awards. I would have been very happy with a split, I will say. Well, it was going to be split with 1917, so Well, would I wouldn't have been that? happy with that split. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just leave it there. So overall, it was really fun to get to talk about my experience at Cannes. I will probably never shut up about it. I will really try hard to not be like, oh, I saw this at Cannes every episode this year. But it was so fun to talk about some of the movies that I saw and Marty and Parasite. Yeah, the Cannes slate is probably my most anticipated list of premieres that I look forward to every year. And I'm excited to eventually get to a deeper dive into Parasite 
that's one that I will never shut up about. So (laughs) (laughs) it'll be fun to revisit that again. I will be very happy to do that. And next time on Oscar Wilde, we will be returning to a game that we played in an episode over a year ago at this point where we pretended that the notorious best popular Oscar was a real thing. And we went through each year of the 2010s and decided, you know, what the nominees would be and what our ultimate winner would be. This time we are going to play that same game, but we're looking at the films of the 2000s of the aughts. So we'll be going through each year, 2000 to 2009, and deciding which films we would nominate for the best popular Oscar. I can't wait for this. It'll be a lot of fun and very different from the 2010s version. Why different? We don't have the Marvel movies. Oh my God. I mean, not really. Yeah, just doing a quick glance. I do like a lot of these movies, so I'm excited and maybe viewers will find a little reprieve from my hating on box office (laughs) hits. Thank you everyone for listening. We will see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Go follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Oscar Wild Pod. We'll see you next week. Bye.